continue our time in First um, Thessalonians chapter two, uh, finishing out. Uh, we'll visit verse thirteen again, but just finish out this section uh, from verse thirteen uh, to sixteen in First Thessalonians chapter two. Um, I don't know if you ever uh, go down. Well, sometimes I've got places to go. Okay, when I'm at the church, so I pull out and I turn right. Uh, but that's so congested down there, right? At Studebaker and Imperial. It's just a nightmare down there. So you can hang a right. You go through this first light and you go through the second light, you know, at the 105. And then you can hang a right and it takes you through the neighborhood over to Imperial. But if you get the wrong street because the, the next street, you think, oh, I'm going to turn there. Well, it's a dead end. So I've done that several times. You know, I've been here eight and a half years. You think I would know by now. And I get so mad every time because so, I turn down there and it says, this is not a through street. Mm. Makes me so mad. So a lot of times we take a street that we think is going to get us somewhere, but it's just a dead end. And I think a lot of people spiritually uh, look for spiritual paths to take. But any path that is not led by Christ is just a dead end. Uh, and that's what uh, Paul is writing to these Thessalonians about. Uh, and we're going to uh, infer something. We're going to follow a rabbit trail that's implied. If you look at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, For this reason, we, are also con- we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, uh, when you heard it uh, from us, you accepted it. That's their salvation. They embraced it for real. Uh, Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Here's where we want to really focus this morning, which is which also the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe Uh, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Uh, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews Those Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets and drove us out. Uh, They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men. And they are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles uh, so that the Gentiles could be saved. Uh, With the result that those who oppose the gospel are always filled up to the measure of their own sins. Uh, But wrath has come upon them uh, to the utmost. Uh, There is a, a stark contrast here, comparison in verse 13 Uh, Where God's work can perform what it's supposed to do, but only in those who believe. Uh, Someone who does not believe, and you look back earlier in verse 13, the word accepted, it's a very strong word. It's talking about uh, to salvation. Uh, And we're going to see a warning here. Wow, does that look as small to you as it does to me? Okay, I don't know. Uh, We're going to see a a warning uh, this morning uh, that, you know, there are people who uh, and quite frankly, there are probably people here in this room this morning. uh, There are people who go to church every week, week after week, uh, month after month, year after year. Uh, There are people who are even involved in ministry, uh, people who would say they even enjoy hearing the scriptures taught, but who are not really born again. Uh, And Paul is alluding to that here in First Thessalonians 2, but we're going to spend some time in the letter uh, called Hebrews 
that really talks about that. Uh, because there were those that were opposed to the ministry, uh, some in a hostile way, but some were opposed to the gospel and opposed to Christ, but in a very quiet, uh, unassuming way. We read earlier, you know, the parable about the wheat and the tares, right? Uh, that uh, the Lord said, there's going to be believers in the church age. Churches will be filled with those who believe in me, but churches are going to have people who don't believe in me. In fact, those people in your churches who don't believe in me are going to look so much like their true believers. It's going to be hard to tell the difference because they say, oh, do you want us to go through and pull out the weeds? He said, no, don't do that because they're so closely mingled together that you could pull up some of the good stuff. You know, we've had these rains uh, and my backyard's gotten uh, away from me. Those of you who have been over there in years past when the Kurtanics lived there, you know, uh, uh, she had put in just a beautiful two-tiered garden. We have all these fruit trees and all these flowers. And well, with the rain, the weeds got away from me. And uh, <laughs> the weeds uh, in some places are so thick that I was pulling weeds and digging weeds. And then I pull out the weeds and some have these big bulbs attached to them. I'm like, oops, uh, I don't think that was a weed. Uh, that, that might be a tulip or a, a daffodil or something. So uh, I do my best to shove it back in there. But uh, the weeds are so entangled with the flowers that I'm yanking out the weeds, but I'm injuring the good stuff too, the flowers. Uh, and that's what the Lord said about the uh, the unbelievers amongst the believers in our churches that uh, we shouldn't be trying to weed those people out. Let the Lord take care of that on Judgment Day, uh, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart or the inner person. So only he knows. So what do we do? We teach, we preach, we counsel, we advise the truth and we pray that the unbeliever will come. Now, these Thessalonians were not of that group. We know that their salvation was real. The people to whom Paul's writing uh, and their suffering that we just read is proof of their salvation. You know, sometimes suffering does that. It it exposes what is genuine and it exposes what is false, uh, because when they're suffering, uh, the kingdom fakers, they're going to run away. Uh, and the true believer remains. But look at all these words used in Thessalonians uh, talking about their affliction and how they've suffered and how they were persecuted, how they were hindered uh, and how they were treated contrary. Uh, and it was proof uh, that their acceptance there that we read in verse 13 was something very real. Uh, but obviously, and really the letter written to the Hebrews in the back of your Bible, which we'll get to in a moment, probably circulated even among these people, uh, because we know that the letter of Hebrews circulated around. It wasn't written to just one church or one group of people. It was written to uh, the dispersed Jewish believers. OK, I know there's a lot there. I'm going to go. OK, I love seeing all the pencils and the smoke. So I. Look at uh, when Paul told the Thessalonians in verse 13, the word of God performs. Uh, uh, did you see my the title of the sermon? Uh, isn't the, aren't the Oscars next week, right? Is that right? I don't know. Nobody's going to admit that in here, right? Because we're Christians. We don't watch the Oscars. Well, I don't know when that is. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. I don't go to movies. I'm a born again believer. Uh, OK. I think it's next week. Anyway. Anyway, no one's biting on that. Okay. Uh, 
the Oscar goes to when we go to the book of Hebrews, we'll see uh, that there's a lot of acting, a lot of faking going on, but not with these people. But how does the word of God perform? It says the word of God performs its work in those who believe. It's kind of an interesting phrasing of words, right? How can words be active? How can words be living? How can words perform anything? But if we trace that idea through the entirety of Scripture, we get this picture uh, of the word of God being alive, being active, uh, being effective, uh, performing, doing something. It's not static. It's only static and ineffectual or ineffectual in the one who is not really a believer. And so... If you don't know, if you can testify that you are not being transformed, if you are not growing, if you are not being molded more into the image of Christ by the time you spend hearing or studying or reading the scriptures, then my friend, you might want to examine whether or not you are really in the faith. And that's scary. That's scary. But it's serious business. Deuteronomy 32 says this is when God gave the Old Testament law to Moses and he told him, he said, my words are not idle words. Indeed, my word is your life. My word is your life. Not only is the word of God living, but the word of God is life. Isaiah 55, 11, I like this passage a lot. Uh, the Lord God says, my word, which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent my word out. God's word always accomplishes what he intends it to accomplish. Always. I have these scripture references on your outlines. Uh, so hopefully you have that. Acts 7 says in the wilderness, talking about Moses again, an angel spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him what kind of oracles? Living oracles to pass on to you. Uh, what were those commandments written on? Do you remember? Stone, tablet, rock. It was just carved into rock that had been flattened out. It was stone tablets. And yet God says what Moses was given was living oracles. God's word was alive. Even the Ten Commandments. God considered those to be alive. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he could sanctify her, using the word to cleanse her like the ceremonial washings with water. So scripture has a cleansing effect, a purifying effect on our lives. Uh, as we sit under its authority, it cleanses us. It points out where the sin is uh, and points us in the right direction, tells us where righteousness is. If we're participating in that Titus three, five says God saved us in Christ, not on the basis of our own so-called good deeds. And if you're here this morning and you think of yourself as being good. I really hate to burst your bubble. Uh, you're not good. You're good, comparatively speaking. You're good, relatively speaking, maybe if you compare yourself to others. But even Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. Hmm. So basically, Jesus was saying, yeah, I am God. OK. But you were saved according to God's mercy 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So once again, uh, the effect of Scripture. Now, Hebrews 4.12, which we're going to look at more closely in a little bit. Uh, a lot of us know this verse, but we're going to learn that it's set in the context of judgment, uh, especially judging the unbeliever is the context of this verse. The word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two edged sword. It's able to pierce down to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Bible you have in front of you, it doesn't just lay there, right? It's doing something. It's active. It's living. So Jesus asked his 12. He said, do you want to leave me, too? And Peter answered him and said, what? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Didn't say you have the words of eternal static. You have the words of eternal empty words that do nothing. He said eternal life words that give life. This is a a great verse uh, for our topic. First Peter one twenty three, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God is living. It's living. So for the word of God to be living and active in your life, for it to perform in you, as Paul told the Thessalonians, you must receive and accept it. Uh, You must accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, circle, highlight, underline. A lot of us want to come to Jesus to be our Savior, but we don't want him to be our Lord. Lord involves authority. Uh, Lord involves obedience. Uh, Lord involves accountability uh, for every area of our life. And we must accept the Bible as the word of God, not just as words of man. Sort of like a hydroponic faith. Uh, If you're a tree hugger or a hippie, uh, you know what? uh, Oh, is that a little? Maybe that's too derogatory. How many of you know what hydroponics are? I knew it, Jennifer. I knew it. I knew she's hydroponic. Oh, I knew you guys would. Ben, I'm shocked. Okay, Uh, but I knew you guys would. Anyway, thanks for those walnuts too. We just finished those, believe it or not. Okay. Well, hydroponics, they grow vegetables, right? Just with nutrients in water, uh, not with any dirt. Uh, they're like living. Uh, once in a blue moon, just enough at the regular grocery store, you can buy the hydroponic lettuce, right? Comes attached with all the roots and everything, right? It's fresher. I think it tastes better, but uh, there's actually, did you see what I put on? <laughs> I was actually, uh, I passed the hydroponic healthy store on my way to Porto's yesterday. Uh, you were at home. You weren't with me. You missed out. Sorry. Uh, I didn't go in anyway. The line is out the door. I, I go over there. And every time I say that, Patty Morales goes, but it goes really fast. Uh, no, it doesn't. So, uh, But anyway, I noticed on Firestone over here, there's a hydroponic store. It's called Watch It Grow. That's all they sell uh, are these vegetables and fruits and stuff. So who knew that there was such a big business? But. Now, spiritually speaking, it's the same way because we already saw earlier in First Thessalonians in chapter one, where Paul connects the word of God to the spirit of God in order for us to grow or be sanctified. We cannot uh, or God will not perform 
his effects in our life apart from the word of God or apart from the Holy Spirit of God. They work in conjunction. And one other thing that I should have put in that formula that may blow your mind. The Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit cannot work into your life either unless you cooperate with him. Spiritual growth is a partnership between the word of God, the spirit of God and the child of God. God will not force you to grow in the faith. He will not. Why else would Paul say work out your salvation with fear and trembling? He's talking about after you're saved and growing in your walk with the Lord. You work it out. Why do the scriptures say do not grieve the Holy Spirit? Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that we can do that? It's the idea of quenching the spirit is a picture of pouring water on a campfire. You ever go camping and then when you leave, it's very important, right? To make sure that the fire is completely out. When we quench the spirit, we pour water on the work that he's trying to do in our lives. Some of us, I think, are still waiting for the magic Holy Spirit fairy to show up. And wave his little sanctification wand. Poof, you're godly. Poof, you're godly. That we think we don't have to do anything that God's going to do at all. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. So how can the word of God perform? Well, think of it this way. We, this was really the gist of what we looked at last week. How can the word of God perform? How can the word of God be living and active? How can it be effectual? Because it's connected to God, the father, God, the son and God, the spirit, who all are living, active beings. Therefore, God's word reflects God's character, God's nature, because God is living and active. His word is living and active. And is not Jesus Christ given a title in John chapter one? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then he says later on, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Then he says, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God. The father, I mean, no one has ever seen God, uh, the only God father, but the begotten God, who is the son has explained the father. But an interesting title, right, for a person. Uh, I don't recall anyone ever naming their child Word. If you have another baby, maybe Word Lansing. That would be pretty good. Ooh, or Word Ramirez. Which one sounds good? Word Patton, that sounds terrible. Uh, unless it's a grandchild. I might suggest that. So, But to call Jesus Christ the Word, Why? He's the living word because he reveals God the Father. Your Bible in front of you is the written word. It reveals God's will, God's nature, God's character, God's expectations. You see on your outline the comparison there between uh, Christ and the scriptures. We won't go through that. But uh, point number six on your outline. Look at this is just my footnote in my study Bible. All of the active, living, performing that the word of God does in the life of the believer. You see that on your outline under number six. It says uh, the word of God is saving, teaching, training, guiding, counseling, reviving, 
restoring, warning, rewarding, nourishing. It's judging, it's sanctifying, it's freeing, it's enriching, it's protecting, it's strengthening, it's making wise, it's restoring the heart, it's prospering us. And we could go on and on and on and on. These are all the things that the word of God can do in the life of the believer who embraces Christ, who works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to allow him to work. But now go back toward the back of your Bibles to the letter written to the Hebrews, what's called Hebrews, because it is written to uh, Jewish people. Jewish people are the audience uh, for the letter of Hebrews. We're not really sure who wrote the letter, uh, but we want to look at something here. Uh, look at chapter six of Hebrews, starting in verse four. It says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain. We can understand that illustration, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. Uh, that soil receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. We'll mention it again in a moment, but just up front. This is not saying we can lose our salvation. The believer is not the target audience of these verses. Uh, but what we see here is that the word of God also has a performing aspect in those who do not believe. But it's not a good one. It convicts. The unbeliever, it draws the unbeliever to Christ, but it also judges and condemns the unbeliever. And the greater a person is exposed to Christ and to sound biblical teaching and still rejects it, the greater his judgment will be on judgment day. That's what the Bible teaches. There are some we'll see who are reading this letter called Hebrews, there are some in our churches today, there may be some among us even this morning, who are here week after week, month after month, year after year, participating, listening, enjoying, but not really making a true spiritual regenerated commitment to Christ. It is those people who are in danger of the greatest judgment. Greater than even the unbeliever who is ignorant of spiritual things and ignorant of the gospel. It's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. One commentator called it walking away in full light. That's who he is talking to here. Now, Hebrews 4.12 is actually, which we read early, a warning passage. Uh, to a group that uh, Dr. John MacArthur calls the informed but unresponsive. Uh, and it began way back in chapter 3, and it's based on Psalm 95, and it follows a theme. It says, beware of unbelief, be afraid of falling short, and be diligent to make sure that you're entering God's rest. There's something we need to remember about the letter to the Hebrews, or we'll be in danger of misinterpreting what we read. He's actually talking to three different groups of people in this letter. He's talking to those who are truly born again, and there are sections of the letter directed to them. He's talking to unbelievers who just flat out refuse 
to accept Christ or the gospel. And there's sections directed to them. And then there are sections directed to the third audience of this letter, who we just mentioned. Those that are fully engaged in the church, who have heard a lot of Bible teaching, who may even be involved in ministry, who have walked right up to the very edge of saving faith, but said no. But said no. And more often than not, we have no idea who those people are because we're also mingled together. The writer of this letter is trying to unmask that person's heart to bring them to true saving faith. Is what he's trying to do. This is a warning to those who are intellectually convinced of the gospel, who enjoy the gospel and church blessings, but who are in reality spiritually uncommitted, the informed but unresponsive. Look at he gives us five advantages of this group, five advantages of those who are informed but unresponsive, because in verse four, remember, he's not talking to believers. Because how do we know that? Well, if he was talking to or losing salvation, a lot of people will go to this passage and say, see, we can lose our salvation and get it back again. But verse six says that this group who falls away, it says it's impossible to renew them back again. So if this is talking about losing salvation, then that can only happen once because it's impossible to be renewed again. So it can't be talking about a loss of salvation. And I put some scriptures on your outline to make sure that uh, you understand that. Uh, when we're truly saved and we're truly born again, that's once and forever unshakable, immovable, undoable. So he says, first of all, in verse four about these folks that are so close, but no cigar. He says they have been enlightened. Well, what does that mean uh, that they have been enlightened? That word carries the idea of having an intellectual perception of spiritual biblical truth. But there's no response. There's neither a rejection nor an acceptance. To say that they are enlightened means that they have been around good, solid teaching. And they actually enjoy it and they like it. You know, King Herod, uh, you know, the scriptures tell us, and it's really tragically fascinating. And King Herod is the man who put John the Baptist to death, remember? Remember, John the Baptist called King Herod out on his immorality. But the scriptures tell us that though John the Baptist perplexed King Herod, the words of the scriptures say King Herod enjoyed listening to John's preaching. Isn't that just sick? I mean, that's not sick in the cool, good way like the young people say. That's sick. No, we're going to use it in the old fashioned way. Sick like that's twisted. Uh, that it says that this wicked, immoral unbeliever enjoyed listening to John's preaching. That's dangerous. That's really dangerous to be exposed to that much light, but still not let it in. Secondly, it says in verse four that this group, these people. Have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what does that mean? Well, the greatest heavenly gift, of course, is Christ uh, and his salvation. But when it says they've tasted, the point of that word is talking about they just sampled. They just sampled. 
I love to go to Costco. And you know why? They have the best free samples. Mm. Trader Joe's too. But sometimes I don't know what that stuff is at Trader Joe's. But you walk around. You don't, even, you don't even have to go out and buy the good pizza. They just walk around and eat the free samples, right? But that's what this word taste means. Just sampling. Uh, you take a free sample, but you never buy the product. Why am I going to buy that? I can just stand here and eat ten of these. Uh, I don't have to make a commitment and purchase the product when I can just sample it. That's a huge commitment. I'm going to have to take it home. I'm going to have to pay for it. I'm going to have to prepare it, you know, and all this stuff. Uh, so these people, it's showing the difference between feasting upon the word of God versus only sampling it or tasting it. Uh, these people weren't truly feasting upon the word of God because they weren't truly committed. They were just uh, pretenders, uh, but really, really good pretenders. He says they also were partakers of the Holy Spirit. That sounds almost like they're saved. Well, no. When you know that the word partakers there in Hebrews 6, 4 means to associate with, it does not mean to possess. Meaning when the Holy Spirit was in their church working and doing wonderful things, they were able to participate in that. The true believer, where is the Holy Spirit residing for the true believer? Within him, within you. But the Holy Spirit was not in these people. The Holy Spirit was merely around these people. You know, it is interesting. The scriptures talk about how an unbelieving wife can or a believing wife can sanctify an unbelieving husband. Paul told the Corinthians and and a believing husband can sanctify an unbelieving wife. Well, that makes it sound like, well, if I'm a believer and my wife is an unbeliever, she can be saved because of me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when there's a believer who lives in a home with unbelievers, those unbelievers are going to be blessed because the Holy Spirit lives within that believer and therefore he lives in that home. And there are going to be certain advantages, certain blessings that that whole family, that whole home will partake of because someone who is a child of God, who has the Holy Spirit, lives there in that home. So unbelievers can partake of the blessings of the Holy Spirit without really being born again. And he's saying to these folks here, you're partaking of all these blessings of the Holy Spirit because you're around him as he's working in the believers. And you mistakenly, self-deceivingly think that that makes you safe. Says no. No, it does not. You're not going to be riding into heaven on someone else's coattails. That's not how it works. Then he says uh, the fourth advantage he brings up for those that are informed but unresponsive. They've tasted of the good word of God. It is interesting that the word here is not the word logos, which is normally the word used in the Greek to describe All of God's word, the whole counsel of God. He uses a different word for the word of God here. A word that means only parts, only bits, only pieces, not the whole. So he's saying they're just sampling, tasting bits and pieces of the word of God. 
but they haven't accepted it like the Thessalonians did as the word of God and not merely the words of men. There's some advantages here. You know, Jeremiah chapter 15, it's a very strange verse, but it's also very wonderful. Jeremiah says, in essence, your words, O Lord, are my food and I eat them. Now, does that mean he took the scroll? They had scrolls, you know, and he rolled it up and he had a word sandwich. You know, is that what it means? No. He's talking about the strengthening. He's talking about the nourishing. He's talking about the nutrients, spiritually speaking. He couldn't get enough. He couldn't get enough. I remember somewhere in the Gospels, the disciples told the Lord, you need to eat. And he says, my food is to do the work of him who sent me. Now, it's not bad to taste of the word of the Lord, right? Psalm 34, verse 8, David said what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The point that David's saying is, don't stop with just a taste. Don't stop with just a sample. You're walking through the store, you try a free sample. Boy, that's really good. I'm going to buy five of those, right? I, I want the whole thing. I don't want just a sample. It's too good. That really is the problem for a lot of us. Why we aren't really on fire for the Lord. Why uh, the spiritual things of God don't consume us because we've never really even stopped to taste and see how good the Lord is. I don't know about you, but the more when I'm sitting down and I'm reading or I'm studying, it's hard for me to stop. I don't want to stop because uh, I'm reading a passage and it'll send me to another passage and I'll go to another passage and I'll go to another passage. I'm like, oh, this is good. And this is good. I'll pull out a commentary. I'll pull out a study help. And I read it. It's like, wow, you know, before I know it, eight hours have passed. I go home and she says, gosh, you were at the church a long time. What were you doing? Uh, well, uh, reading. Uh, Reading, I think that's it. And eating stuff out of my candy drawer, that's it. It, it is like, how many of you experience that, right? You, you start feeding on the word and you realize that it just makes you hungrier, right? Just makes you hungrier. But some of us haven't even begun, and that's part of the problem. Lastly, he says this. He says, this group of informed but unresponsive who just refuse to make a commitment uh, to Christ. It says they've tasted the good word, of course, and then it says they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. Well, what does he mean by that? Earlier in the letter in chapter two, I think verse nine, uh, we learn that a lot of people reading this letter of Hebrews lived during the time of the apostles and they saw the apostles performing miracles. And doing great feats of power from God. And the person that wrote this letter, when he says the age to come, this is exciting. The millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Christ on earth after the great tribulation. He says those kinds of miraculous things will be commonplace in the kingdom that is to come. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. There's going to be some... Just constant miracles happening during the millennial kingdom. Some of these readers saw a lot of amazing things and still 
refused, refused to come to a full acceptance of Christ. And wasn't it the same in Jesus' ministry, right? They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him heal crippled people. Not just one or two. The scriptures talk about just thousands upon thousands, innumerable healings. And it says that not everything could even be recorded in scripture because there wouldn't have been enough uh, room in the whole world, enough books to record everything that he did. And the people who saw those things, he did two different feedings, right, that are recorded, right? Once he fed a group of 4,000 plus women and children. Another time he fed 5,000 plus women and children, probably upwards of 15,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and fish, right? He probably did that on more than one. So I would assume, right, that if he did that for 15,000 people, once every single person there saw that miracle, they all put their faith in him, right? All 15,000. True or false? False. We'd have to assume false. We'd have to assume that probably even some of those people who had been fed by that miracle were probably in the crowd yelling, crucify him on his last day of life. Seeing a miracle is no guarantee of belief. And this writer of this letter says, you guys saw the apostles do some amazing things and you're still on the fence. You're still on the fence. You're still undecided. It's a commentary on the sinful human heart, right? That's part of it. So finally... Look at verse six. One last warning. When he says. If they've then fallen away after they've received these five advantages, it's going to be impossible to renew them to repentance. What he, what's he saying there is not that someone's lost their salvation, but what he's saying is if you keep rejecting Jesus Christ, eventually you're going to go beyond the point of no return. Because repeated rejection dulls the heart. Repeated rejection slays the appetite. If you can look in the face of all these advantages you've been given and still say no. Then eventually God's going to give you what you want. And by the way, sometimes it's frightening when God gives us what we want. If what we want is to not receive him. And it's even more dangerous to walk away, as we said, in full light. What does he mean? He says you're crucifying uh, to themselves the son of God and put him in open shame. He's saying when you repeatedly reject Christ like that, basically you're crucifying him again, just like those people who crucified him on the day of his death. In other words, you're rendering the same verdict about him that those people did that day in Jerusalem Who put him on that cross and murdered him. You're just crucifying him again and putting him to open shame. And then he talks about the soil and the rain. It's interesting. It's the same ground. It's the same rain. But we have two different growths. One grows vegetation that's very useful. But out of the same ground from the same rain in verse 8. Sometimes comes thorns and thistles. Talking about those who just keep 
You receive all this rain, all these benefits, all these blessings of being in the light of the Holy Spirit's work, being in the light of sound teaching from the scriptures, being in the light of fellowship with other believers and still saying, no, 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 I'm not ready to make a full commitment to Christ. Saying what's going to happen is you're just going to die an unbeliever and end up in eternal torment in fire. And we don't have time to get into all that, but people believe some crazy things about hell. First of all, hell is a real place. And why do people believe heaven is real, but they don't believe hell is real? Uh, everybody goes to heaven. There's no such place as hell. Uh, it doesn't even make any sense. It's not even logical. And in some strange, mysterious way, hell brings glory to God. It magnifies his glory in some way. It's quite mysterious. We knew a, a family, uh, they were what you call ultra dispensationalists. Uh, they pick and choose what parts of the New Testament they want to believe, but they didn't believe in hell. Uh, and she said, what's God going to do? Fry him on one side for the first half of eternity and then flip him over and fry him on the other side for the other half of eternity? You know, she was mocking. Uh, how can someone burn for eternity? Well, folks, the scriptures tell us that just as we who go to heaven have a new refashioned body fit to live in heaven for eternity the unbeliever's body is fit to endure suffering for eternity it says the worm will never die always burning always suffering never dying it is mysterious but it is real it is reality so that's what he's telling these folks three times in this letter Chapter three, a couple times in chapter four, he says what? Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't keep rejecting him, you know, like your ancestors did in the desert. Today could be your day of salvation. Why are you on the fence? Why are you putting it off? Why are you hedging on making a full commitment to Christ? And if we go back to First Thessalonians chapter two. Verse 13 again. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word, that's more the type of tasting, sampling, listening. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. That's a stronger word. That's embraced it, uh, brought it into your heart and your mind. That's their conversion. And you accepted what you heard Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God and the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For God to perform in your life, you must believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Come to rescue you from your sins and believe that the scriptures you hold in front of you are not just man-made fairy tales, but somehow supernaturally, divinely, God worked by the Holy Spirit through the mind and the life and the pen of the human author. We say, that sounds crazy. Do we not believe that Jesus Christ, the living word, is both divine and human? The written word is also divine and human. If you compare Christ to the scriptures, you see that they're almost identical. Look at your food for thought. 
Look at your food for thought at the bottom of your outline on the second page on the back. This is for your CPR groups. This is for your daily devotions. Uh, maybe you could use this uh, in the upcoming uh, triads for the ladies. First of all, how does a person merely taste of the Lord versus feasting on him? Think about that. Look at that list of 17 ways listed on your outline where the word of God performs in the life of the believer and share how you have seen it clearly in your life. Just choose one of those. Read the account of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 and compare it to Hebrews 4. Uh, that should actually say Hebrews 6. So you want to cross that out. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. How are the two passages alike? And how do we know Matthew 13 is not talking about the rapture? Ask yourself if you would like to see God performing more in your life and what's preventing him from doing so. And using that list of 17 performances above, what would you like to see God do more of in your life? And then lastly, of all the scripture listed on the outline, because there's a lot I'm assuming you're going to look up every single verse. Which verse is the most meaningful to you and why? And which verse, single verse, would you most like to commit to memory? Now, remember, it's not going to do any good to sit and listen to the word of God unless we apply it into our life. So next week is the Oscars, I think. You don't want to be nominated as a spiritual actor or actress, right? Best supporting role in the Christian life. We don't want that. We don't want to be fakers. We don't want to be actors. We don't want to be like that group who had all those advantages. So, of course, you know the challenge today. Let's stand together. You know the challenge today. If you fear that you don't really know the Lord unto salvation, if you really fear that you're not sure if you have eternal life, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what's going on in your life, in your heart. Maybe you're involved in things that make you doubt your salvation. Maybe you just have become very lazy and apathetic. I don't know. Uh, you need to come and talk to me. It's very dangerous to be exposed to so much of the light, but still choose to live in the darkness. It's very dangerous. You can talk to me. You can talk to one of the other elders. You can talk to uh, anyone who you respect and admire as a strong believer in the Lord. Now, if you're here today and you're convinced that you are born again, and I know most of you probably are. Would someone be tempted to nominate you for an acting award if they evaluated your spiritual life? What about those five advantages we looked at in Hebrews 6? Do you feel like you're taking full advantage of what God has provided you. Look over that list of 17 things, and there's even more that God does in our lives. Are you cooperating with the Holy Spirit, or are you resisting? Are you quenching? I don't want to do that. We live in perilous times. Wow. You know, I don't even watch the news anymore. I really don't. I was really caught up in the election and all that. I was watching it every night. But now I don't I don't even watch it. We we usually have dinner and watch the local news together. That's about all I can handle. The national news. It, it's scary, isn't it? We've got Russia. We've got Syria. We've got Korea. I mean, we've got assassinations going on. We've got we've got hurricane weather. We've got mudslides. We have a dam about ready to burst up north. 
I mean, th- we, we live in a, a scary world. Spiritual things, your relationship with Christ. That's the street you want to be on. Every other road, every other street is just a dead end. Just a dead end. Make sure you know that you know the Lord Jesus unto salvation. And then make sure that you are nourishing that walk, that you are kindling that fire for spiritual things. And if you need help, I'm here. Heavenly Father, thanks for speaking to us today in your word. Sometimes because you love us, you give us warnings. Salvation or eternity is not something to trifle with. Eternal life is not something to treat lightly. As we gather here together every week, we're supposed to get our values and our priorities realigned. That's why you call us together. As we look into your word Not only do we learn about you, but you also expose ourselves to us. Hebrews 4.12, our heart, our intentions, our thoughts come under your loving, sharp scalpel. So I pray that you would help us to see ourselves accurately. And Father, if our heart has been exposed as someone who is not truly a follower of Christ, may we take care of that today and ask him into our life. Ask him to forgive us of our sinfulness, recognizing that there is nothing we could do to save ourselves or gain eternal life on our on the basis of our own good works. But it's only Christ. It's all Christ. It's nothing but Christ. Please open the eyes of our heart to see that. And if we already your child, father, rekindle that flame. Shake us out of our laziness, our apathy. Help us to feast upon you and upon your word more than the things of the world. Father, thanks for letting us be together. We just pray so much that you have been pleased, that you have been exalted, as well as your Holy Spirit and your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Uh, Don't forget to join us for lunch if you like upstairs.